Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. On today's podcast, Tidget and Lag3 are back in the spotlight going into ASCO, the UK's new mental health initiative, and seeking clarity on the small biotech exemption for the Inflation Reduction Act. But first, looking for a powerful new partner to accelerate breakthrough cancer research? At Cancer Research Horizons, their business is breakthroughs. Cancer Research Horizons is the innovation arm of Cancer Research UK, one of the world's largest private funders of cancer research with access to $400 million of world-class research and the expertise of 4,000 researchers and clinicians, Cancer Research Horizons has formed over 60 startups and helped bring 11 drugs to market. Cancer Research Horizons is looking to partner with pharmas, biotechs, and investors. Find out more at cancerresearchhorizons.com slash collaborate dash us all righty a pair of positive checkpoint inhibitor readouts due at asco is bringing much needed enthusiasm back to the immuno oncology space keeping one compound in the running for a rare next generation checkpoint inhibitor success story and bringing new life to another Lauren, you dug through a lot of abstracts last week. The conference kicks off in a matter of days. What did you find out? Yeah, so as you said, my takeaway from last week's abstracts was that this conference has people a little bit excited about immuno-oncology and checkpoint inhibitors again. And the two that you mentioned, these are phase one studies, but there seemed to be some positive efficacy signals here. So one of them was tiragolimab from Roche Genentech. And this is a, a program that sparked a lot of excitement three years ago and sort of had a big blowout in, in non-small cell lung cancer last year. And now there's a, a phase one study in hepatocellular carcinoma where it more than doubled PFS. So this is very reminiscent of what we saw a few years ago. There is a history of, of early results for this program not translating in phase three. So I think cautious optimism is, is what we should have here. And there is, there's also the caveat that the control arm, uh, this was tested with Tocentric and Avastin. So just those two alone sort of underperformed in this trial. So, so the treatment effect may be exaggerated. And then the other, the other checkpoint inhibitor study that looked promising was one from Regeneron for its lag-3 antibody finalimab. So this was just an update from phase one results that we saw last year at ESMO. And last year they showed that in first line and second line advanced melanoma, there seemed to be a, a very positive effect, um, possibly more than the approved lag-3 antibody. And that with longer follow-up, that effect is still there. And it looks as though this might also have efficacy used after adjuvant and neoadjuvant treatment, including adjuvant treatment with a PD-1 inhibitor. 
So Lauren, how, how does this compare to Updulag in the in the same setting with what we'd seen previously with that compound? Yeah, so Updulag in its phase three study, I think the OR was forty three percent, and here in all of these different cohorts, the the first line, the first and second line, and the post adjuvant and neoadjuvant, it was all around sixty percent response rates, and they they seem to be relatively durable. But I, I don't think that those data are very mature. Uh, and I did speak with Regeneron about it, and they're they're not exactly sure why the response rates seem higher than the approved compound. But um, I, I guess we'll see if again if this this result holds through to to later stage studies, and if these results do translate and carry over to later stage studies, uh, this you know it's possible that this could reignite some of the excitement in IO and checkpoint inhibitors that we saw a few years ago. Right, which has been fading recently. So welcome news. It has. Yeah, we've seen that cancer approvals have been down overall. IO approvals have been down. And even in our analysis of other conference oncology con conference abstracts, we've seen that the number of new IO targets has been significantly down since previous years. Okay. And the American Society of Clinical Oncology kicks off Friday, June 2nd. It's always a thing. Uh, you can check out Lauren's story on biocentry.com if you're hungry to dig into the details. In the latest sign that neuropsychiatric drug development could finally be poised for an upswing, the UK has launched a mental health task force that, like the region's COVID 19 task force, aims to accelerate therapeutics development. The task force is part of the UK government's $800 million life sci or growth package of financing that also includes a major boost for the UK biobank. Selena, you caught up with Husseini Manji, who along with Catherine Abel has been tapped as a co-chair of the UK mental health mission. Manji is the former global therapeutic head for neuroscience at Johnson & Johnson. Selena, what did you learn in your conversation? Thanks, Jeff. <clears throat> yeah. So this year, there's been a lot of kind of chatter or use of the term precision neuropsychiatry. In many of the company uh, conversations with companies that I've had, it's kind of come up over and over again. So I just wanted to ask Husseini about how he looks at, how he thinks about precision neuropsychiatry and how he's going to try to help move that along through this new mental health mission. Um, so the conversation centered around uh, ways that neuropsychiatric drug development could become more quote-unquote precise because everybody uses this term a little bit differently, but there are several roads that can lead to greater precision. And so it's been kind of a dead zone, neuropsychiatric drug development for a couple of decades. Um, there was obviously a lot of success with Prozac and Zoloft and some of the original antipsychotics, but they were proved hard to replicate, right? So it became this high risk area and we saw lots of pharmas getting out. And so one of the problems in this area is that some of these diseases are, are huge in terms of their prevalence, like depression, 20 million plus people every year. You know, whereas Alzheimer's, which we think of as a mega indication, is like estimated around 6 million. So when you have that many people, you have almost what's like a collection of lots of different diseases, right? There's just a lot of 
heterogeneity in the population and the disease mechanisms even and, and their symptomology. So you think of depression or schizophrenia, they're kind of diagnosed by clinical symptoms. And there's a long list of clinical symptoms associated with each and you just need a subset. But any two patients can have an entirely different subset of symptoms. And some of these symptoms are diametrically opposed. Depression can be, you know, you can eat too much or too little. You can sleep too much or too little. You can be kind of revved up in a way or experiencing torpor, so on and so forth, you name it. And so, you know, Manju was saying kind of step one and what's the most advanced right now is trying to break up these big patient populations into symptom domains and say, what subtype are you? So Johnson & Johnson is kind of one of the few pharmas who <laughs> kind of stayed the course in neuropsychiatry. And they are looking at depression associated with something called anhedonia, which is just the lack of, like the inability to take pleasure out of things in life that would have been pleasurable before. And this happens to be one symptom domain where neuroscientists have a kind of a better sense of the neural circuit disturbances involved and kappa opioid receptors have been shown to play important roles at certain nodes in that circuit. And so Johnson & Johnson now has a phase three compound for not just for major depressive disorder, but for depression associated with anhedonia. And, and they're not the only one. Um, there's, I think it was 2019, Arch founded a company called Numora, which has since raised over $600 million. And, and they too are looking at a kappa opioid receptor antagonist for this subset of patients. So there's a lot more that can be done in that realm of focusing in on symptoms, symptoms that are really important. And, and you know, at the end of the day, if you share a symptom, you must share some kind of biology, right? Um, and so Manji Siza says, I think you put, called it a good start in terms of breaking up these diseases. But ideally, where you want to go is to a biological basis for subtyping a biomarker. So, so I've got a couple of questions for you. One, you, you threw out some numbers there, but you didn't give the number for how much this initiative is going to give. You know, your story says it's about $53 million. Is that enough to actually make a difference? Did he talk about that? How, what can you actually do with it? Okay, so our conversation, just to be clear, is he he didn't really want to talk about the mental health mission. He wasn't quite ready to do that just yet. Um, needs to get clearance and hammer out a few details, I think. So I didn't get a chance to ask him a lot of sort of specific detailed questions about how this mission is going to operate, how it's going to partner, for instance, exactly how we'll allocate its money. So and I don't know how, you know, if this is just a start and they're going to get more budget over time. Yeah. So, so the other thing that you mentioned in your story that I found intriguing was talking about digital biomarkers and the role for digital biomarkers, maybe to kind of break the logjam of, of what you're talking about, about having lack of good ways to subset uh, populations. Did you talk to him about that or do you, do you have any? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he's a big believer in, in digital biomarkers. And part of the mission's goal is going to be to help push greater adoption of these newer technologies. So far, we've seen precious little use of digital biomarkers. And in fact, Lauren on this call wrote a story about that recently. But where we have seen them, um, they've usually been for sleep or um, movement. Movement might have the most traction in clinical trials. So people are wearing, you know, watches on their wrists, other sensors that can track things like sleep and movement more, more easily than, than maybe other kinds of symptoms. And so that's where that kind of got a start. But there are there are disorders that are primarily we think of them as movement disorders like Parkinson's, you know, 
Um, but Hussein Imanji, he was saying these things are also can be incredibly useful in the realm of neuropsychiatry, where you do have changes in motor patterns, changes in activity levels, changes in sleep patterns and sleep quantities and changes in the quality of one's voice, the amount of speech, the tone of speech. And so this can really help not only with the patient subsetting, but then also just tracking, right? Because something that a patient has with them in their pocket or on their wrist is with them in their daily life when they're going about their normal routines and they can track them frequently and not in these um, kind of artificial and very irregular you know, settings of the clinic where they just come in every once in a while. And so they're going to try and encourage greater use. But, you know, for the, the long-term vision um, for the mental health mission in the field in general is to get to biological biomarkers to test, to subset patients and to track them. Where they're starting out with sort of biological biomarkers is in the realm of like electrophysiology or imaging because they want to get at neural circuit disturbances, right? So you might want to measure electrical activity. So an EEG is something that a fair number of companies are starting to use a little bit now. They're not really stratifying patients in trials yet per se, but they're running biomarker studies to say, okay, these patients have this electrical signature and therefore might be candidate for our drug or to help them determine dose or things like that. Sometimes it's functional fMRI because that's a measure of activity as well or PET imaging. And we're going to learn a lot about the biology of these diseases through those mechanisms. But ultimately, what the field needs to find is something that's much more easy to measure. It doesn't require specialized equipment that correlates with things like an EEG signature or a PET signature that can be measured, like say, in the blood. And then once they're there, you can imagine precision neuropsychiatry happening at scale. But that's down the road. It's not yet. All right. Well, uh, this task force, it is using the UK's COVID experience as something of a blueprint to work collaboratively with industry, the NHS, academia, and medical research charities. It's something we'll be watching in the months and years ahead. Uh, you can find Selena's story up on our website, biocentry.com. And hopefully you'll be able to have another conversation with Manji once he uh, gets his feet wet in the in the new role. All right, the Inflation Reduction Act, something that we just can't talk about enough on the podcast, given how big of an issue it is for the sector. Bio is calling on CMS to provide more clarity about its plans for implementing aspects in the Inflation Reduction Act that gives some small biotechs a temporary exemption from Medicare drug price negotiation. Steve, what's happening here? Okay, so first we have to back up and say, well, what is the small biotech exemption? The idea behind it was to prevent the IRA from having devastating effects on companies that live or die based on their sales to Medicare from a single product, right? Uh, the exemption is going to be in effect for 2026, 27, and 28. Uh, it applies to drugs that accounted for less than 1% of Medicare drug spending in 2021, and then accounted for at least 80% of the total Medicare spend for all of that manufacturer's sales 
to Medicare in 2021. That's kind of hard to um, do that math maybe in your head, but basically it means small companies that have one product that dominates their sales and that it sells a lot to, to Medicare. It theoretically covers both uh, small molecules and biologics, but since since biologics only kick in in 2028 in the IRA, uh, they're not likely to have any that, have, that qualify for the small biotech exemption. Another thing that's important to remember is that companies can lose the exemption if they or their drugs are acquired by a larger company that has substantial sales to Medicare. Two companies so far have publicly stated that they think they're going to qualify for the exemption, Insight for Jacafi and Neurocrine for Ingreza. So getting back to then, what are the concerns? The concerns that um, Bio has is that CMS hasn't done a very good job of saying how it's going to determine uh, whether companies qualify for the exemption. Uh, they've said so far that their intention is to only allow companies to apply for the exemption for the first year right now, for 2026. And Bio is saying, no, let it let the companies apply for all three years. You really know what's going to happen. Not much is going to change in that period of time. Critically, what Bio wants is they want they want CMS to make a public statement saying which companies have gotten the exemption. That's something the companies that get the exemption are going to want because it's going to allow them to go to investors and say, look, see, we're we're exempt um, for these three years and our sales won't be subject to price negotiation under the IRA for those three years. Steve, when might we get a sense of whether CMS is going to change its guidance based on bio's push? Well, CMS has said that they're going to issue the final guidance by July. So I would expect sometime between now and um, and the 1st of July, we'll know what, what CMS intends to do about this. All right. Thanks for that, Steve. Steve has been writing extensively on the Inflation Reduction Act and its implications. You can find this story on our website. Also, if you go onto our website, you can dig down under the Analysis tab, click on Hot Topics. You'll find all of Steve's stories that he's written in the past eight or nine months here, uh, the whole collection in one place. And if somehow you've not been following the IRA, you can quickly get up to speed by tuning into that. Coming up this Thursday on the BioCentury Show, that's our sister podcast, Editor-in-Chief Simone Fishburne is sitting down with Gilda's Arthur Franken. He's general partner at the European VC, and they are discussing why VCs are continuing to draw such large funds. Gilda just raised one of its largest ever. And energy remains so high among biotechs and investors, even in this down market. As I said, you can tune into that as a podcast. You can also go to BioCentury's YouTube channel and watch the video cast of the conversation. Well, thanks for tuning in this week. We'll be back next Monday. Our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provide the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in.